Board games are Thursday. <laughs> I but on Wednesdays, we wear pink. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. I'm excited to tell you about a new sponsor of the show, Rollbar. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors. Ugh. Relying on users to report errors, digging through log files to debug issues, or a million alerts flooding your inbox ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring... You get the context, insights, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster. It's easy to install. You can start tracking production errors and deployments in 8 minutes or less. Or automatically create new issues in GitHub, Jira, Pivotal Tracker, etc. We have a special offer for Ruby Rogues listeners. Go to rollbar.com slash rubyrogues, sign up, and get the bootstrap plan free for 90 days. That's 300,000 errors tracked free. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to rollbar.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 270 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Sam Livingston Gray. Shai Hulud. Orline Ada Emke. So happy they're here today. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I welcome you to go check out any of the remote conferences I'm putting on. Put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, we also have a special guest this week, and that's Lauren Voswinkel. Hi. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Uh, sure. Right now, uh, my name is Lauren Voswinkel. I am a senior web developer with uh, New Relic. Previously worked with Sam, actually, at Living Social. But yeah, I primarily do Ruby developments, and I'm kind of on the show because of a thing that I did both last year and this year on May 1st, which is the talk pay hashtag. So, um other things that I enjoy doing include uh, fire breathing and uh, fire spinning and whatnot. So uh, I play with fire in a, both a literal and a figurative sense. Very nice. So, Lauren, I have to ask you the significance of doing this on May 1st, and I suspect I know the reason. The significance of doing this on May 1st is that it is International Workers' Rights Day. And the reason why I specifically chose to do it on that day is because uh, Labor Day in the U.S. is actually a holiday that was created in order to remove American workers from those more left-leaning, progressive, collective action-type movements. So, uh, yes, it, it, like, it is basically trying to bring uh, American workers back into a, an international discussion. I was pretty fascinated by a lot of the the political and labor history, especially in the the twenties and thirties, and really amazed by how much of a melting pot of ideas were coming out of that time period. People were experimenting with different philosophies of government, different philosophies of the relationship between labor and capital, and um, it seemed like all of that got put on hold during the world wars do you have a feeling about like what we lost in that sort of process 
Well, so funny fact about that, the article that I wrote for the recompiler talks in quite a bit of detail about exactly that. The main focus of that particular article was was a discussion about how really the breaking down of collective action was a concerted effort, actually, on, on the part of governments and businesses. Basically, the I, I had a, a, a hypothesis before I actually went into doing talk pay in general that one of the major pushbacks for collective action and thus union rights and workers' rights in general was the, the anti-communist movements during the McCarthy era. And that was really borne out in in a very, very clear kind of way when I looked into what was known as the Taft-Hartley Act of, I believe, 1947. And in that ta- in the Taft-Hartley Act, there was uh, a restriction of union rights, particularly with regard to policies about strikes. Employees were no longer able to do a like on-the-spot strike that was considered to be illegal. They needed to start doing start giving a, a 90-day notice in order to go into negotiations before there was any type of business impact. Uh, <laughs> right, but. The thing that really like solidified the whole understanding that it was a, a backlash from like fear of communism was that in the Taft-Hartley Act, there was a provision that required all labor union organizers to write a signed notarized affidavit that was then sent in to the National Labor Relations Board saying that they were not affiliated with the Communist Party and were not actually going to work to overthrow the U.S. government. Oh, that's funny. So, like, right in that law was basically, nope, we think you're all a bunch of dirty commies and we're going to require you to have this on file so that we can use it against you if there's any type of case. So I I hope that answered your question, Coraline. I think it provides some really valuable context. So thank you. We, uh, we've brought up a couple of interesting things here uh, so far. One is the National Labor Relations Board, which I think we'll probably come back around to later. But before we do that, you mentioned TalkPay uh, without really talking about what it is. So uh, what is TalkPay, Lauren? TalkPay was a hashtag and is a hashtag that I had the idea to bring forward and bring into the world to get people to disclose salary information with names attached in order to help balance out the information imbalance, uh, I'm using, but basically to work to remove uh, the barriers that people have about this taboo surrounding discussion of pay. And the reason why I wanted to help break down those those taboos uh, about discussions of pay is because in our current labor environments, there's a really lopsided exchange of information between employers and employees. Employers have access to numerous sources of information talking about what the quote-unquote market rate is, whereas employees really don't have much of anything except for just talking about it with friends and family and, other, and their peers in the same work environment. Except and there are these social taboos. Sorry to cut you off, but like there are these <laughs> social taboos around like not talking money with your friends and family, right? Exactly. That is exactly the point. Because no one feels comfortable talking about it, it basically means that people have no idea what their skills are actually worth a lot of the time. 
So I believe the uh, economic term for this is information asymmetry, right? That would be correct. That information asymmetry is something that has really kept wages suppressed across the board in our country, our country being the U.S. and uh, United States. So, um, and really that that asymmetry is is kind of the heart of what I was trying to poke at. Basically, we just make general assumptions about how employers are going to are going to regard us and a lot of times we kind of lose sight of the fact that a salary negotiation is an inherently antagonistic relationship it's not necessarily hostile there's no like ill will there but at its core a salary negotiation is a company looking to hire you and looking to pay you the least amount of money that they think they can get away with where you won't immediately start looking for another job. And because of that, they use all of this information that they have um, services that provide market rates. They, they freely share information with other people during meetings with other CEOs at the bar talking about like, Oh, the, the latest startup. And they're saying, how much do you, how much do you pay for your, your senior developers and whatnot? They have, access to a lot of information that they then use in order to say, okay, we're going to try to pay less than that or get away with paying as little as possible because they're trying to make as much money as possible. And it, it's an understandable thing to do, but it's it fundamentally is basically trying to screw over the worker as much as possible. And no, it's about extracting as much profit as possible, shareholder value and all that, right? Yes, well, shareholder value and all that is exactly screwing over the the individual <laughs> employer. Yeah, <laughs> yes, but yeah, but not necessarily. See, I have a different point of view on this, and that is that it, it's also a market transaction. And so, yep. if I'm negotiating a salary with my employer, effectively, we're trying to. Yes, there is some antagonism there. I'll I'll grant you that, but we're trying to work out what I think is a fair rate for my time versus what they're willing to pay. And if I'm content with my salary. And they're content with the work I'm giving them. Isn't that a fair trade of value? So normally it would be a fair trade of value, except when previous salaries are often used in order to dictate the new salaries. And so when someone has not negotiated right off the bat and they are making, say, $50,000 out of like when they get straight out of school and they voluntarily yield that information every time that they switch jobs, that information is then used against them and keeps their salary at a repressed rate. And so while, yes, it is a quote-unquote fair transaction, if that worker knew what their skills would worth were worth, they would probably look at it and go, what the hell? Why am I being paid like twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars less than my peer who is doing the same work that I am. I should point out too that in a market economy, the value of goods is pretty much established and well known. And the value um, that you offer as the value that of a given commodity is based on, oh, this is slightly higher quality than the run-of-the-mill widget, or this is a widget that was manufactured to lower quality standards so it can be offered at a discount. But the price of the widget, the market value of the widget, is more broadly known than I think the market value of a developer. 
Oh, oh, yeah. And there's two things in there that I'd like to unpack. One is, is this idea that, um, you know, we brought up the information asymmetry before. Like, there is no Kelly Blue Book for developer salaries or, or, I mean, to some extent, right. salaries overall, right? Is the employers have access to much more information than we do because I might, you know, in a given year, I might interview at one or two places, um, unless I, you know, find myself out of work and then I might interview at three or four, right? Uh, but the other part of that is that even if there were a Kelly Blue Book for developer salaries, how do you evaluate an individual developer? Yeah, that's tough. right. Damn. I, I still want to, uh, before we go there, I, I want to just go back to this, this conversation that we were having because I, I still have a little bit of an, of an issue saying, well, if this developer could have negotiated a salary of $70,000, even though the comp, you know, if the company hadn't known that they were making 40,000 before, you know, and they, they negotiate 50 or 60, is the company really doing them a disservice? I mean, it feels like because the employee does not have the information to ask for 70 and doesn't know that they shouldn't, you know, give their past salary information to the employer, it seems like some of that responsibility does fall back on the employee and that it's not just the employer trying to screw them over. I would then counter with the statement that there are so many social factors that restrict people's abilities to freely talk about information. Like women and people of color are often chided for being too aggressive or being too uh, basically standing up for themselves. And so those factors and those like social punishments play out in negotiations so that they often feel the need to pull back and to and to accept what's originally given. And so that then leads into things like income inequality. While yes, there is some personal involvement that needs to be looked at, the deck is stacked against people. And so you can't say, oh, it's that person's fault when society has been telling them that they shouldn't do that their entire lives. There's another aspect too to what you were saying, Chuck, and I, I think that's a that's a critical point, Lauren, and I want to come back to that definitely. But if a if an employer gets away with paying a substandard salary, we all know all of our experiences say you are not going to get a raise that is commensurate with in the rate of inflation, let alone the rate of the value that you are adding to an organization. The way a developer gets a raise is by moving jobs. So Absolutely. what is, what is the employer really gaining except accumulating the cost of training and retraining and retraining new workers for that substandard salary? Is it, and is that trade off really worth it? Well, I would agree with you there. I think turnover probably costs companies more than anything else in their business as far as, you know, loss in productivity or profit or whatever you want to call it. Um, because you have to effectively spend the time and money to bring somebody on board and then to train them and then to do all of that other stuff. So yeah, if they figure out that they're worth more and they go somewhere else, then you have just lost the game as a company. Which is why there's an incentive for companies uh, to discourage employees from sharing that information with each other and with people outside their companies, right? So they discourage uh, information sharing within the company because they don't want one person to get upset that another person may be making more or less than them. I actually have a story about this. Yeah, let's hear it. Um, so back when I was working as a manager uh, for a company, I'm not going to be too specific because 
you know, I don't want to smear the company that I was working for. And the manager that was responsible for it ultimately uh, was let go. But when we started building out the support team for this company, we hired two guys to help us out and figure out to do some of the work that we were doing for support. And then as time went on, we hired more and more people. But uh, I only was involved in hiring the first two or three. And then they hired somebody to be my manager. And he hired the rest of the team. And when he hired the rest of the team, it turned out that he hired somebody who looked a whole lot like kind of that model employee that you would imagine you get. And he made him an offer for a higher hourly rate than the other two guys that had been there for a while. And eventually one of them walked across. He left his pay stub out. This this other uh, employee left his pay stub out. And so these two guys who had been there for a while uh, probably contributed more to the team than anyone else. And they found out that he was making more than them, so they went to this boss, and he actually lied to them about it. And, you know, so they sort of held up the pay stub and said, no, this is really what's going on. And, yeah, eventually, you know, that that manager was let go, and those two employees got raises. But, yeah, I mean, it just comes down to basically that this guy looked like the kind of person that this manager wanted to hire, and so he hired him and gave him a higher pay. And... You know, if if that information hadn't ever come around, then, you know, the two other employees would have been happy with their salaries and, you know, they would have been paid less and everything would have gone on as normal. You know, and I think I think there is a discussion to be had over what's fair versus what what we should or shouldn't know about each other. But, yeah, it was it was interesting. It was really interesting just to see that, okay, you know, as soon as the information came out, those those two guys weren't happy with what they were getting paid anymore. And. You know, I, I think it plays into this. I'm not sure exactly how, but I think it's an interesting, at least in my experience, way of seeing things where, yeah, I mean, if we lost those two support technicians, we would have been hurting. And it probably would have cost the company a bunch of money to find and hire people to make up for the work that they would have been doing. Going back to the concept of like some companies acting in bad faith, I mean, we had in in the tech community, we had some of the largest names in technology, Apple, uh, Intel, Google, and whatnot, like all of the people at the very high ends of those companies collaborating to keep salaries lower. They were saying that we that those companies weren't going to poach. They were basically colluding to suppress wages. And so like you can't see something like that and then say companies are acting in workers' interests in any kind of sense. I, I agree with you that those companies were not acting in good faith. At the same time, I don't think all companies do that. It's true that all companies do not do that. But when you have some bad actors and those people are getting away with it, and active, particularly when they're at the high end of the spectrum, they are keeping the entire market suppressed in that case. Yeah, that's like, right, especially like one of them was Google, which I think pays more than almost any other company on the planet, as far as I know, right? And they are, you know, they and Apple and it looks like Intel, according to this article I found, um, they all basically conspired to keep wages lower than the than the actual market in their area, Silicon Valley would have would have led them to be, and so yeah, that naturally has a suppressing effect everywhere else. So I'm interested in the fact that there's this asymmetry of information that Sam brought up, and yet 
developers are so in demand that we can pretty much set the terms of our employment. So what is the missing factor here that is keeping us all from maximizing our salaries as part of these negotiations? And I think, Lauren, you talked on some of it in terms of the cultural taboo for women and people of color to ask for what they think is fair. But I think probably the same thing's happening to, to white dudes, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I certainly feel ashamed of talking about my salary with other people. I, I will. I have to, you know, consciously make myself get over that. But yeah, there's a lot of you know, sort of enculturation around like, oh, this is this would be rude or embarrassing or it would make people feel bad or it seems like you're bragging, right? Yeah, the, there is definitely this cultural understanding and belief that it's you're either participating in your own shame or you are shaming other people when you're sharing that type of information. And that discomfort and whatnot is kind of the the core of what needs to be addressed. It really is a phenomenon that only works to, to the majority of the population's detriment. And when it comes right down to it, the middle class as a whole is has been atrophying for decades at this point. And really, they are the driver of the economy as a whole. So one of the reasons why I saw fit to to start encouraging this this breaking down of this taboo is is the hope that it would filter down to to all sectors and people would start having these conversations because Trickle-down economics just doesn't work. We've seen that over the past three and a half decades. If you want to to enliven an economy on a broad scale, you need to put disposable income in the hands of the masses, so to speak. Like, if people are only able to for- afford the bare necessities, the companies that are going to be making – the companies that are going to be making the most profit are going to be people – selling those necessities, looking at like gas companies, you're looking at companies that are discounting on food. So you're looking at Walmart, you're looking uh, at Target to a large extent. All of these companies are taking the vast majority of of income and companies that are selling what are considered less necessary goods are suffering for it. And I think we're we in the tech sector are probably going to start seeing that fairly soon as the economic crunch becomes more and more prevalent. You know, I just realized something. Executive salaries tend to be public. Yeah, there's a reason for that. What is that reason, you think? (laughs) That reason is basically so that they don't get completely out of hand. You don't think they're completely out of hand? (laughs) No, so... (laughs) So they are already completely out of hand. I'm saying it so they don't even get more out of hand. So what do you mean by out of hand? Most people have the belief that salaries should be based on the amount of of profit and good in a company that is being delivered to the company. Like there should be some degree of performance, performance basis in there. What ends up happening with uh, with CEO salaries, with corporate executive salaries, is they're making 100, 200, 300, even 500 times the salary of the median work of the median salary paid out by the company, and so you're looking at that, and you have to you have to have this question of like, 
how in the hell is one person providing 300 times the return of the median worker at that company? It's kind of mind-boggling to me how how corporate executives end up justifying those salaries. So you're saying that the CEOs aren't worth it? They aren't worth they aren't worth being paid that much? So yeah, they are not worth the amount they're being paid. There are C- there are CEOs who have driven companies into the ground and made killings off of doing so. That's true, but uh, that's on the boards that run those companies. I-, I see the CEO market as a market, just like the programmer market's a market. And if you want to get the CEO that you think is going to take your company to the place that you want it to be, then you have to pay them whatever the market is demanding for that position for that person. But that information is public. And so, and so therefore they know that they can keep bumping that number up. Whereas for programmers or for any workers, that information isn't public. So there's, there's less ability to go, Oh, well, I could just go over to this other company that's willing to pay, uh, 180,000 for, for my skills. And so like having that, that transparency is, is kind of a double edged sword. Yeah, and I think this is the crux of the argument behind talk pay, right? Is that if all of the information about who was making what where were publicly available, then people would go to the place where they can get the best market value, so to speak, for their skills. Yep, that's exactly right. And basically, as a whole, we should be able to bump our salaries up collectively until until the the fair market value and what we bring to the valuation of a company is reached that there's a ratio there that is something that should happen naturally but because of secrecy because of this asymmetry it's been artificially suppressed and that's that's really what talk pay is trying to address okay so what what i want to get into then is a hashtag on twitter going to make this change effective or are there other things that we can or should do that are going to bring about this or, you know, sort of level the playing field and and give us less asymmetry in our information. (sighs) So I chose to do a hashtag simply for, for two reasons. One reason is that it's tied to a person's identity. Something like Glassdoor has existed for years before TalkPay has, but I've talked to a number of people who have looked at information on Glassdoor where sharing informa- uh, salary information is given anonymously, and they find reasons to justify why that Im- like fictitious person is making so much more. You look at a an amount, a dollar value, and you look at what you're making and it's like, okay, well, if I'm making $135,000 a year as a developer who's been working for 10 years and someone at some company just in the field of, of software developer development with a senior software uh, engineer title is making $360,000 a year, I'm going to imagine someone who is absolutely prolific, like... Mm-hmm. Like a word Cunningham or something, right? Yeah. Just someone who is far and beyond like pushing the boundaries of what is possible in the field. But when I find out that that person who's making $360,000 
is Chuck, the guy like five desks down, who is doing basically the same things that I'm doing, and I'm muttering about code quality. I'm going to look at that and be like, well, shit, why am I not making that much money? That is is why I chose to, to do a hashtag is so that these dollar values would have actual people attached to them. And is there something else that can be done? Is there is there more that can be done about this? Absolutely. There totally is. But this was something that I was seeing to just get the ball rolling, to have these discussions, not just about sharing salaries, but about the taboo surrounding sharing salaries. To have people say, hey, I'm uncomfortable sharing salaries. Well, why are you uncomfortable sharing salaries? Why does that feel like it's something that you shouldn't be doing? I had, a, I had a great reason for not wanting to participate in that hashtag. And that is, as a transgender woman, I feel like my employment can be terminated arbitrarily at any point in time. There is no legal protection in my state. For me, I don't have a protected status as a transgender person. So I can be fired without cause. And it seemed to me like revealing my salary could be the thing that would say, oh, we don't like the fact that she did that. We think that that is disingenuous. We think that that was revealing company information that we'd rather keep private. We're just going to let her go. So what were some of the like the real world implications of like the retaliation against people who participated in that hashtag? Did you hear any stories? I actually hadn't heard any stories of someone being retaliated against and uh, one of the reasons was that when I originally, in the article that first kicked off uh, Talk Pay, I discussed uh, the National Labor Relations Act of 1936, which basically prohibits companies from actually punishing people for discussing pay. It was kind of shocking to me to find find this out because literally every company that I had worked at before I kicked off the hashtag Literally every company that I had worked for had a a little clause in their employee handbook that basically said that you can't share salary information. When I read about the National Labor Relations Act, that was explicitly called out as being illegal to do. Like a company cannot prohibit the exchange of that information. And so that was one of the things that kind of emboldened me to to first start exploring this. But I I will absolutely say that when I first disclosed the information, my salary information publicly at Cascadia Ruby 2013, that was what I like to refer to as a pants shitting moment. Like (laughs) that was that was nerve wracking to an extreme degree, exactly because of the the fear of retaliation. We live in a country where pretty much every state is known as an at-will employment state, which basically means that you can be fired for any reason, regardless of status. Or no reason. Yes. At any time, with or without notice. Exactly. So there is that, that extra fear that when you are a marginalized individual, that it will come back to you. And that's actually one of the reasons why uh, a friend of mine, Stephanie Murillo, she actually started collecting anonymous information from primarily women and people of color to to then share for the hashtag, which I had I actually had mixed feelings about because of 
the fact that I wanted names attached. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask you about that. Yeah, no, that that was like I completely understand why she did it and why that was really important. But it was it also kind of undermined the the impact of publicly disclosing with name attached, like both in breaking down the taboo and helping others to realize their own potential market value for their skills. Now, I have a clarifying question for you about that uh, National Labor Act. What is it that you said? National Labor Relations Act. Yeah. Relations Act. Thank you. Um, I, I, I've done a little bit of reading about this myself, not nearly as much as I suspect you have. But uh, some of the things that I've seen have explicitly called out the idea that that act protects disclosures between employees um, and was meant as a, as a way to maybe help or workers uh, self-organize a little bit better. And so I, I know that you are legally allowed to share your salary information with somebody that you work with. Um, but as I understand it, some companies try to make a case that sharing your information about uh, outside the company is somehow still a trade secret. So... If you have access to entire pay structures, like if you are a manager or if you uh, have access to a poorly locked down employee database uh, and get that salary information not through the discussion of uh, with your coworkers and whatnot, then that is information that was obtained, I don't want to say illegally, but like in bad faith. Um, and so isn't covered by the National Labor Relations Act. However, discussion of your own personal salary outside of outside of like company work time is perfectly legal. Like it, it is protected by the National Labor Relations Act. They cannot absolutely cannot dictate who you can talk about with your salary. The implication that would be made if you couldn't discuss salary information outside of the workplace would be you can't even tell your own family, which is <laughs> completely absurd. So, so that's to, just to clarify, I can talk to coworkers or neighbors or the guy down the street or some stranger walking down the road that I'm passing going the other way about my salary as long as I'm not on work time. Uh, even if you are on work time, you technically should be able, able to do that. That's what the Nap National Labor Relations Act was specifically calling out. It was saying that uh, that workers could not be punished for, for basically doing collective action on company time. Okay. Now, there's restrictions based on, like, you can't do an organization uh, for a union on company time and ex still expect to be paid. But what was being called out was like discussions during lunch hour uh, about pay were things that work that employers were retaliating against. And so that was basically called out as like, you can't do that. You can't actually control your employees behavior when they're not being paid by you. Right. So it's, it's kind of nebulous because you, you said before that it was, it was like on company time. They can tell you, like, hey, you're not talking about your job, get back to work type of things, and would potentially be able to retaliate against you for that. But, like, if you are at your place of employment and having lunch or whatnot, then that that is you being off the clock, technically. And they can't tell you, like, oh, you can't talk about that here because you're at work. So... It's the, the kind of, like, legal caveats and nuances that are really kind of Byzantine. 
I'm curious about the intersection of sharing your salary information publicly and imposter syndrome, because I personally do not feel like I deserve the salary that I am receiving relative to other people who I see as much, much better in the field than I am. Oh, God. So my feelings about that particular aspect is that this is one of the reasons that we need to have these types of discussions, because what it comes down to is that people should be making what they're worth. And we're right now suffering from from salaries being artificially repressed. And so that kind of anxiety uh, and imposter syndrome coming up really, to me, feels like an effect of of living in this like salary repressed situation. It's not that you shouldn't be making that much. It's that everyone else should be making more. And that really is another one of the main drivers for why uh, why I started Talk Pay in the first place. The whole crabs in a bucket thing of like, oh, people shouldn't be making uh, $160,000 for, for sitting at a keyboard and whatnot. Well, it's like, well, why not? If I rate a program that saves the company like $2 million in revenue annually, theoretically speaking, I should be making even more money because I just saved a crap ton of money for the company. So this belief that we're not contributing as much, I grapple with that a lot because of this mentality that we should devalue the work that we're doing and not put it in terms of raw dollars like the companies that we're working for are actually doing. So I have a, a follow-up from that. One of the things that I've been thinking about and struggling with for years uh, as a developer is this idea that my job is basically to destroy other jobs. Um, you know, <laughs> I take things that a bunch of clerical people in clerical positions could do, uh, and I make them more efficient. And by more efficient, I mean it takes fewer people to do them. And, you know, that is literally taking somebody's job away from them. Now, I I sort of balance that out with myself by thinking about how what I take away is boring work. And I I make the boring work easier to do so that humans can focus on the more interesting edge cases. But still, like there's there's been a discussion for quite a while now about the larger effects of automation on certainly our uh uh, manufacturing industry, but, you know, we are automating office work, which used to be uh, a pretty good way to make a living. Yeah. Thoughts uh, on that? I, I have killed so many jobs personally. Yay. Oh, it's something that, that I've thought about. Quite You're like a, a politician. That's amazing. I know. Right? <laughs> I grapple with that a lot. And fundamentally what it comes down to it's kind of an accelerationist pers- type of perspective. Uh, accelerationism is this belief that like things should be not should be, but like th- things will get sped up to a point of like untenability uh, before they get actually addressed and, and, and taken care of. And so a part of me feels very accelerationist about this, where like we are rapidly coming to a point in our society where we're we're reaching a tipping point we need to either we need to start assessing things and wondering like do people need to be working in order to live yes like that is a a huge question that we're 
going to need to start addressing because we're also coming to a point where artificial intelligence might make our jobs obsolete. We need to kind of we need to kind of grapple with that, and and it's something that weighs heavily on my mind. And so this this discussion and this push for for collective action and for working as a, as as kind of a united front uh, in disclosing salaries and getting used to to having difficult conversations, particularly surrounding pay, is one that has kind of ul- ulterior motives. In that <laughs> I in that I really want people to start asking difficult, difficult questions about the nature of work and the nature of life in a place where there aren't jobs for every single person. I see it from right now, and and this is a generalization. It's not always true, but I think it is usually true, that the jobs that we eliminate, like office work and things like that, are things that ultimately aren't moving society forward. Or if they are and they can be automated, then we can move those workers to other places where they can move society forward in more meaningful ways. And so I don't feel terrible about making something more efficient because what that means is that we can then redistribute our manpower to things that make a bigger difference. And like I said, I know that's not always the case, but in a lot of cases, it is the case. Yeah, and I, I definitely definitely feel that that is that is the case. But the problem that the problem that I then see is that like the places that will really like help propel like humanity as a whole forward are completely and horribly underfunded. Like you look at this, the sciences and whatnot. Like I, one of the things that's been really depressing about talk pay has been seeing the number of people who have left the hard sciences and the humanities in general as well. Like they have left fields that they have become experts at. I mean, talking about, people with master's degrees in genetics, people with PhDs in material sciences, things like this, leaving those fields because they weren't paying anything. Like people with PhDs talking about, hey, back in 2014, I was making $26,000 a year. And they moved to to software because they're getting paid a hundred thousand plus. Like, Mm -hmm. That, and they're that, getting paid that much to work on a service that will bring you, and I kid you not, this is a literal thing in Portland, warm cookies in the evening, right? Yep. Or any of a variety of other things that your mom is no longer doing for you. Or or, or like the, the hardware devices that allow you to video chat with your pet while you're at work. <laughs> <laughs> right. These have, have uh, long-lasting societal and uh, humanitarian value. So, Lauren, I'm curious. I want to bring it back a little bit. Do you consider the TalkPay project successful? And what do you think the net effect of your effort was? Oh, God. The TalkPay project is a work in progress. And I think it always will be. What I mean by that is that I think it has been successful in that it is helping to propel these conversations. The fact that I'm on this show right now talking about this means that it worked to some degree, but we constantly need to be to be talking about collective action and to be talking about populations as a whole. We need to constantly be advocating for ourselves because if we are not lending our own voices to to our own benefit, no one is. And so 
when I say that it's it's a work in progress, I'm saying that I will continue doubting about this every year at least until it is a regular occurrence that people feel like they don't feel bad about sharing this information. They don't feel bad about advocating for themselves. And that's really the end goal of, of TalkPay. So it is successful, and I hope it will continue to be successful. And I hope that I won't be like 70 or 80 years old from like decades from now being like, why aren't we talking about this still? All right. Well, that seems like a good place to wrap up. Sam, do you have some picks for us? Oh, yeah. Let me see. Um, I've been doing a fair bit of reading lately. Uh, I, I have this tendency to read books to the exclusion of everything else, such that if I start a book, I will stay up until three in the morning to finish it. So I read in binges. My One of my latest binges was uh, a book by Patrick Rothfuss called The Name of the Wind, and it has a sequel whose name I don't remember off the top of my head. This is sort of like classic, uh, you know, Euro style fantasy but it's really well done uh there, i really enjoy the writing the characters are really rich um, i enjoy the world building uh this has you know this is a fantasy world that mixes elements of uh magic and uh thaumaturgy with also sort of uh 18th century newtonian physics so they actually have a very scientific approach to magic which i find really interesting uh anyway it's a it's a really Really well done book. And uh, the one thing I will warn you about is um, that it is a, intended to be a trilogy, and there are currently two and a half books in it. And the author is uh, extremely, how shall I say, deliberate about his writing. Uh, so if you want to wait until the third book is out, uh, and you may want to because they're really good and compelling, you might want to put this pick on a shelf for a while, as it were. But it's well worth your time. That's it for me. Awesome. Coraline, what are your picks? I also have a fantasy book to recommend. It is called The Lies of Loch Lamora. It's a fantasy novel by Scott Lynch. Um, it is part of a series called the Gentleman Bastard series. It's about a group of elite con artists calling themselves the Gentleman Bastards. And they live in a city called Camorra, which is based on Venice, um, on an unnamed world that is not our world. And there's a lot of interplay between like the past and the present. Locke Lamora and his gang get themselves into various ways, various means of getting in trouble um, with very elaborate schemes for robbing the rich and sort of taking advantage of the very rigid society in which they live. It is a very fun book. I don't know. I've always had a thing for heist movies and heist movies like they don't tend to be really good movies, but there's something that's really fun about them. <laughs> and this book has the feeling of a heist movie. The The action is constantly moving forward, and there's constant surprise, and it's full of twists. And it's just it's a lot of fun. It's not a challenging read at all. If you're looking for a series to get involved with, you could do much worse than The Lies of Locke Lamora. I feel almost compelled to recommend uh, the Mistborn trilogy by Brandon Sanderson if you enjoyed that, because the first book has an amazing feel of being like this epic heist. So, yeah, terrific nice. books too. I was actually going to pick a Brandon Sanderson book. I've been going through and reading pretty much all of his books, just because so I've enjoyed so many of them. One of the book series that I don't hear talked about as much, and it's a much, much more lighthearted and uh, humorous book series is Alcatraz versus the Evil Librarians. 
And <laughs> they're, they're funny books. There's a new one coming out called uh, Alcatraz versus the Evil Librarians, and it's the Dark Talent. And, you know, so it picks up after the, the latest Alcatraz book, which I don't think he published one in a while. So anyway, I'm, I'm really interested to see that one come out, and I'm excited about it. Uh, one other thing that I'm going to pick, since I'm traveling to Chicago this evening, actually, is I have some Bose noise-canceling headphones, and I just love having those in the airport and on the airplane. I, I can't say enough good things about them. They work really well, and it kind of makes it so I can tune everything out, and I can either read or listen to a book or, uh, you know, while I'm traveling, listen to music while I work on stuff, and it's just, it's terrific. So I'm going to pick those. I'll put a link to them in the show notes. Oh, seconded. I, I bought a pair of those a year or two ago, and I've, I've discovered I'm much less tired when I arrive at my destination when I've had the, uh, the noise canceling on for the, the flight. It's, it's great. Yep. Lauren, what are your picks? So uh, my picks right now are two TED Talks by Brene Brown. The two TED Talks are The Power of Vulnerability and Listening to Shame. And they are absolutely amazing talks, really discussing about how shame and vulnerability are, are kind of cruxes to human connection. And uh, I feel like they really kind of gel with the discussion about talk pay because there is a lot of vulnerability and shame that goes into to talking about pay. So I, I highly recommend uh, listening to those two TED Talks just because they, they really help kind of put our lives and our interactions with other people into perspective. So... Awesome. Well, if people want to find out more about you, what you're doing, uh, get involved in TalkPay, what do they do? Well, they can use the hashtag or and or follow me on Twitter. I am at Lauren Voswinkle, a very startling name. I know it comes out of nowhere, but at Lauren Voswinkle on Twitter is where I can be found. All right. Well, thank you for coming. We'll wrap this show up and we'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.